Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we are really excited to have as our guest, Dr. John Johnson, a PhD economist who specializes in applying economic analysis to large and complex data sets for Fortune 100 companies to help them make high stakes decisions in litigation and strategy. And we're going to be getting Dr. Johnson's help on looking through all sorts of really interesting statistical stuff that is being thrown at us right now in 2020. Everything from understanding what's going on with the police better to the coronavirus to the election itself. And one of the reason we got Dr. Johnson is he's the author of the book, Every Data, the misinformation hidden in the little data you consume every day. And We've gotten, we've read some previews of this book. We absolutely love it. We think he can help us out a lot. Dr. Johnson has been interviewed extensively on the polls during the 2016 campaign cycle on platforms such as uh, Full Measure, Full Measure with Cheryl Atkinson, Washington's Top News, and WJLA's News Talk. And he's also the founder of Edgeworth Analytics, where he does this professionally. Yeah, um, Edgeworth Analytics is. Um, sort of a new subsidiary, as I understand it, of Edgeworth Economics, which is a consulting firm that Dr. Johnson started a number of years ago. And in addition to consulting in the analytics and economic sphere, he's uh, very big on education and empowering professionals and organizations to sort of unlock their data's potential and really understand and draw the appropriate insights from it. So Edgeworth helps transform analytics from a source of you know anxiety for a lot of people who are kind of over overwhelmed with with there's just a wash and so much data nowadays and overcome that 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 um, sense of anxiety um, and help drive better performance and just generally help the company out. Their unique approach is rooted in expertise and real world experience. And is it's a firm full of PhD economists. I mean, if you go and look at Edgeworth Economics or Edgeworth Analytics website, it's just doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor of really, really impressive people. And, you know, just as a footnote, he got his PhD in economics from MIT. So there's that too. Pretty cool place. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Dr. Johnson. Well, thank you. I hope I can live up to that billing. My goodness. That was, uh, <laughs> um, but I will do my best to uh, try to help with some of these data issues. And I'm uh, really excited to be here. It's a really fascinating time, a little bit of a depressing time as well. But I think data is as important as ever. And the yeah, the, when when we were first thinking about this show, we actually we were thinking 
this is before George Floyd was killed. Uh, so our, we were thinking about focusing on the coronavirus and the election. And, and we realized as, as we were, you know, at some point we have to let Dr. Johnson go today. So we, as we were thinking about what stuff to not, to not pick his brain about, it's just a, it was just another reminder of how overwhelming a year this is. And it's, and that, the, the, the overwhelming nature of everything being thrown at us, I think actually makes this show so immediately appropriate and, and meaningful for us to be able to try to navigate how our world is changing under our feet. And uh, so, so Dr. Johnson, if you would not mind, I'm going to go straight into the gnarliest one that I can think of right now, which is um, about police violence and bias. Right. So, uh, you know, I've, I, I'm sure all of our listeners have seen gobs and gobs and gobs of statistical tidbits thrown at them about the nature of police violence, the nature of police racial bias, systemic bias in other areas of of the United States, and uh, and and a lot of it looks contradictory. And so I think as as tough as this this is, it's a good case study. For us to be able to potentially, you know, kind of put our, to, for yeah, good case study for us to to potentially be able to dive into to this and understand it better, rather than just let the pundits do the thinking for us. And so, one of the statistics I I want to use as a potential case study that, you know, that I've actually seen some people kind of debate on on our own Facebook group is this one. Um, it's it's from the New York Times, and it says Minneapolis police use force on blacks at a 7x rate of whites. So 7x more likely to use force on blacks. And of course, you have to then ask the question, well, is that per, per interaction? Is that just by population? We dive into the, you know, we dive into the statistic and, and we find out it's by population, right? So if you're just a, a black person living in Minneapolis, you get that 7x versus just a white person living in Minneapolis. So if we're looking at raw population, you know, we, we start going like, okay, well, what does this what does this statistic tell us? Does it tell us there's a clear racial bias in terms of use of force? Does it tell us that you know there are more police in you know areas where there are black people, and so they just inter- interface more? Does it tell us there's a higher incidence of crime? And what I think we we would love some help in thinking about is, let's say, you know, any of us are, are readers and consumers of this kind of data. What do we need to start thinking about and how do we dive in, you know, like run at this data and start peeling it back to better actually be able to like answer a answer a useful question with it? Yeah. So um, so right out of the box, we're going to start with one of the, the harder topics. And I, I think the first thing that just sort of, you know, would be remiss if we sort of started without saying that, you know, being rigorous about data, thinking about what the data means. Asking questions about the data does not mean um, that someone is, you know, necessarily doesn't believe that we have a Black Lives Matter problem in the U.S., doesn't even believe that there aren't potentially systemic differences in terms of how Blacks are treated by police. But I think what we want to do to most effectively start to craft solutions to these problems that are data-driven, you have to be able to actually look at the data in a way that then you can determine what does this tell me and what is this not telling? So with respect to the statistics that you put forward on Minneapolis, I think the first thing that I would say about this is that, you know, what we want to do is figure out what is the question we're trying to answer and what is the mm-hmm. need we're trying to ascribe to these statistics, right? So the 
And, and one thing I always sort of when I approach these problems, you sort of think about it as a puzzle, right? There isn't necessarily, although data provides rigor, data doesn't provide all the answers. Data provides a context with which to start to frame what you can or can't learn, what you know, what you need to know more about. So when I saw this sort of particular study, the, the questions about the sort of raw numbers, you know, if this number of seven times, the rate is seven times greater for blacks than whites, you know, that on its face, you'd say, okay, well, originally that's going to make me pause and say, wow, that seems like a big difference. How do I dig into that to see what could be going on under the surface? Um, there is clearly sort of one hypothesis, which is about sort of racial disparities, different treatment of blacks and whites by police. To sort of get sort of that on more firm footing in terms of assessing that, what you'd want to do is start to dig deeper about, all right, well, what is the distribution of police across neighborhoods? What is the distribution of the types of crimes that are being picked up? I believe in that particular study, there's lots of information about different types of um, behavior and reactions from police. So part of what it's doing for you is providing a bit of a baseline from which you can sort of do your exploration more carefully about, okay, where are there potentially problems and how do we think about it? But when we think about these things from a statistical perspective and we see data kind of put out there, we always want to contextualize and sort of, all right, what are the potential explanations? What are the factors that could be driving that? Now, I'm not saying if that if we controlled for other factors and turned out we could actually explain some of these differences, um, and we only found a difference that was three times more likely for African-Americans or Blacks, that would still be a problem potentially. I'm not saying that. But it's just about really thinking hard about the context and digging a little bit deeper. What's the data? What's the, what does that number really mean to us? And what question can we answer? And what are the limitations? So we might be, yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even think about what's the, what's, what is the question we're trying to answer? Cause it could be, it, 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 you know, that difference it's, yeah, I, th I think your point is like saying that, look, the fact that there's a difference is, is an indicator that, that there's, I, I guess you, I'm not going to actually, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'm going to say, you know, the fact that there's such a large gap is not good. And, um, but that there might be multiple causal mechanisms going into it. So one of them could be. You know, one of them could be the bias of the police themselves. One of them could be, you know, or but there could also be other societal factors that are causing crimes to be higher in these neighborhoods where, you know, black, you know, black, black citizens are, are interfacing with police. And there could be, you know, there, I mean, there could be a higher yeah, there could be a higher rate of crime. There could be a higher rate of certain kinds of crime that cause the police to get involved more often. And so what are the causes of those? And if we're able to, what it, what it feels like I'm hearing is like the better we can understand what are the different causal mechanisms here in the police themselves, in other societal mechanisms that are contributing to the statistic, it, 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 like, it, it feels like we're a better position to be able to potentially, you know, think about policy changes that are, that are going to, that are going to impact this number. Look, policy, if we want to affect change, right? Of course, there's the, the the reaction phase, which is, of course, you know, people just being horrified by what they see. There's response, and then there's sort of action, right? And if we start thinking about action, we have to think about what are what can we take from the data to most effectively craft solutions. Now, some people might say the situation is so desperate we have to act, and we don't have time for you know data analysis. I think all I would say is that. The higher, the more we can sort of use the data to help guide us, the more likely that we can actually craft some solutions that could actually both be monitored and, and sort of help. So here's a simple example. Imagine one of the things that we really think we have to invest in a society is sort of education for police officers and sort of much more rigid training about things 
banning certain behaviors, whatever they are. You know, if you have a baseline of data, the only way you're going to know if the, any of the interventions you do, whether it's mm. weeding out certain people that are prone to bias, whether you think it's about training, whether you, whatever the solution is, the only way to know if it's really been effective may not all well be looking at some aggregate number. It's going to have to be a little bit more detailed. I think averages lie. I'm not saying that the overall number is lying. I'm saying, but in terms of actual policy prescription and getting to practical things that can move the needle, make a difference, you really want to understand it much better. And I think that's kind of the eye that I try to take towards these things. What can we learn and what can we start to think about when we dig in that might help us to really craft some effective policies that can have immediate effects and stop these things? Um, and again, that, that's separate and apart from any value judgment about right. how horrible what we've seen and experienced is and, and our, you know, what our country continues to experience and what Blacks in our country experience. Um, but it's really about if you're going to use the data, maybe the data can be really at its most effective when we understand it um, the best we can. Yeah, and I think something that maybe, maybe a lot of folks don't think about when they think about the word data or big data or so on and so forth is that behind these numbers at some base level, it's a representation of some sort of phenomenon, right? Whether it's a human experience, human interaction, or a physical event. And that the the data is very good at capturing one aspect of that experience, but not necessarily all of the experience. And that's sometimes difficult to, you know, disentangle sort of the classic problem, right? Correlation versus causation. So with that in mind, I want to talk about sort of the other big thing that's been going on this year that really has put statistics front and center of the conversation in a way that really I I haven't seen much in my lifetime, maybe outside of, you know, politics or economic or um, polling for elections and economics. But that's, of course, COVID. And all of a sudden, our lives started to become governed by these charts, flattening the curve and the average death rate or the R naught, all of these things. So as we move into that world, you know, one of the analogies that everyone has been making is to that of the Spanish flu. And we did an episode on this and, you know, there are some similarities and differences between this event and um, the Spanish flu and similarities with other, other pandemics in history. But if you're looking at the challenge of modeling some of the, like the spread of COVID, you know, what, how would you think about what variables you would use and you would tweak that could potentially, you know, lead to seeing a bigger second wave or a third wave. And we like this article from Stats News that was published in the beginning of May, and it shows sort of like three different scenarios with basically graphs showing outbreaks at different points, depending on sort of how people's behaviors work. But how do you think about those variables and how do you present the level of uncertainty related to using those variables in the model to a general public? Well, it's interesting, you know, having... Our economics firm has been around for 11 years. Our analytics firm, we really only started in the last year. And, you know, we hit about, we were about to embark on a series of tours around the country where we we're going to go speak about data and data in the workplace and HR analytics and a whole bunch of the kinds of analytics work we do. And when COVID hit, we basically went fully remote. You know, we have 80 employees. <laughs> um, everybody's remote. We weren't going to any conferences or any of those other things. We started with our analytics company to put out COVID studies basically every day. So uh, we've become sort of amateur epidemiologists while we're being professional statisticians and economists. And the reason why I say amateur epidemiologists, why that's so important is um, what is unprecedented in so many ways about this is that you have a 
health crisis that has directly led to an economic crisis. And unlike other recessions, unlike other times in history where we've had whether it's the 2008, 2009 Great Recession, whether it's the 1982 recession, whether it's the Great Depression, we know exactly what's caused these economic harms. Uh, we shut the huge swaths of the economy down. We have uh, people getting sick. We have fear that is keeping people from sort of going back out into work and demanding the sort of you know demand for goods and services. So understanding the health issues has actually became critical, not just to our health policy individuals, but to economists who want to understand the causation leading into the various issues with respect to COVID spread. So at first, I will tell you, and one of the fascinating parts about this, um, you know, this is going to get taught in statistics classes for years after we're through all this. Um, first was purely descriptive analysis. How do you interpret numbers when you don't have systematic testing. So at first, you know, all this talk about flattening the curve and still flattening the curve. One of the things that I think is the most frustrating part about interpreting the numbers is we can get raw case counts. And, you know, over the last two and a half, three months, different states started to release those numbers. We, we built some dashboards, you know, we have a Tableau map of Maryland, for example, where zip code by zip code, we showed the number of cases on a daily basis matched to demographic characteristics. So the first task was sort of the pure descriptive. Can we even get a handle on what these numbers mean? Now, we found out somewhere along the way that several states were combining different types of tests, these antibody tests with the sort of viral tests. And so some of these numbers on case counts were conflated in a way that actually made no sense at all and essentially made the numbers pretty useless for us. Then you have the issue, well, the classic statistical issue of sample selection. Who is the most likely person to get administered a test? Someone who has symptoms. We're not doing random testing. We don't have anything that's close to representative testing. We don't have anything close to universal testing. So what you have is this really weird sample where although you're observing case counts, you're observing them based on testing that is not being done in any systematic way. So that is, quite frankly, at its foundation, one of the hardest parts about mapping this. So now in the last several weeks, we've had reopenings, and we saw and have seen anecdotal stories about reopenings affecting the number of cases. Now, as a matter of everything that anybody has read about the way what you know, the medical professionals know about the spread of this disease, obviously mobility, more exposure to people, would you'd expect to increase counts? But we've seen graphs and people putting out numbers where you literally have the day the states open and trying to interpret spikes up or down around that very day in cases. Now, we know there's a lag, but we also know the testing has changed even in terms of different states testing more or less. So the modeling problem is very, very challenging here because of all that information. And I think something interesting that you mentioned was that you guys have become sort of amateur epidemiologists. And there has been there have been threads as this has developed about sort of being wary of you know misinterpreting covid data because you have a lot of maybe like beginner data scientists for example someone who wants to learn about um some machine learning algorithm or another playing with you know a clean data set from kaggle which is just you know for listeners out there a website where you can get different types of data sets that are generally kind of cleaned and like accidentally drawing the wrong insight but still being able to publicize it and i think that's right and i think there are risks there at the, at the same time you mentioned this uh, mix-up that the CD made, uh, CDC made in releasing, essentially conflating two different types of tests, one for the positive antibodies 
and the other was for oh my gosh what, what was the difference viral. between the two again yeah viral. so the viral but so one was viral, that's if right. you had it one was if you had any antibody at any point in time for it so it's sort of got like, it between actual you know again it's confusing, but you're right. I mean, here's here's the agency that is responsible for you know managing our response and sort of various states putting out confusing and conflicting numbers that really don't allow us to draw any conclusions, no matter who you are. And if you're so, if you're the expert epidemiologist at the CDC, how how does how does sort of a conflation between two different types of of statistics like that happen? And how can the general public, you know? try to weed through the difficulty in the, the detail and the subtlety of that distinction. Right. So I think here's another example where, first and foremost, one of the things that is kind of uh, just so unprecedented right now, again, and I hate that phrase because it's used so cavalierly in other times, but right now is a time where it's actually really <laughs> true and really important. This is an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. Right, exactly. So you've got, first of all, just the pure need for a policy response, right? And so people are hungry for data and you can't get data fast enough that is accurate enough to make the decisions we need to make in this climate. I use the economic data as a great example. You know, there's these monthly Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that come out that the unemployment rate is based on. They're lagged three, four weeks by the time we actually get the latest number. There's weekly unemployment insurance numbers that come out every week, but they get modified every week once they have sort of a better update. Um, It's the same with these sort of numbers. In the beginning, you're trying to just manage this crisis. They're sort of, they don't have testing capabilities. They don't have systemic testing capabilities. So in some respects, the statistics becomes part of the equation, but it's, it's just sort of easy in an environment where everybody's trying to act to kind of miss the boat on some of these things. And again, as I said, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't pretend to be. I have learned a lot about this in particular statistics. But I think there and in all of these situations, if you now get to the point where you have this odd intersection of a political climate and an impatient society where a lot of people are tired of being in their homes, they're experiencing extreme economic distress, you have politicians that are trying to talk about flattening curves and interpret numbers, but at the same time are also making trade-offs about, well, I can't keep this economy closed for how long. Um, and so now you really is, that's the time when you have to be the most vigilant about what does the data tell us. So what I would just sort of point to, again, when you're thinking about these numbers, is when you look at case counts at any level, at state, county, zip code, try to also look for the companion number on how much testing is going on. I mean, we've yeah. situations where you know, states are reporting declines in the number of cases, but they're also testing a lot less. <laughs> um, so that doesn't, you know, hiding, you know, well, if we don't test, um, well, then if the problem doesn't exist. That's not an answer that's going to work. <laughs> that's not from a statistical standpoint. That doesn't help. So that's one thing I would say for sure. The other is back to this causation issue. Okay, We're trying to build econometric models. We're actually, we're trying to model these various issues in terms of how the reopening variation across states is leading to changes in the number of cases. Um, And it's a very, very hard problem. But what I would avoid is sort of the casual empiricism that is, well, let me look at a graph where somebody drops a line on the graph and says, oh, right there, that's when the state reopened and look at the number of cases that have spiked up. Um, One of the interesting data sets that we found out there, there actually are pretty good. A lot of cell phone companies are making um, travel data sets available where they can track how far people were traveling from their home. And what that's actually giving us is sort of some metric 
by which to estimate how much mobility there actually is, right? Because um, it's one thing to sort of just discrete say, state of Florida is open. It's another to say, well, people in the state of Florida in this county, they're now traveling, before they're traveling 10 miles from their home, now they're traveling 50 miles from their home. So look, I think we're going to keep peeling the onion on this problem. And I think it's critical that we do as a society. I am concerned that we're going to have a second wave. And I am concerned that the opening, you know, when we started this COVID crisis, it was every day with COVID, 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 COVID. Now we've had sort of a beginning of reopening. And you hear a lot more about economic harm and you hear a lot less about COVID. But the number of cases haven't changed. I mean, where the cases are has changed, but this hasn't gone away. There are still thousands of people dying every day and the cases are going up in the aggregate still. So um, it's almost the classic, you know, again, a aggregate number can really lie to you because we still have huge pockets of the country where this is a, a becoming a really, really severe problem. And other places where it's flat doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. So I think it is a time for discipline with the data, but it's complicated and it has to be thought of carefully. Those are a few things, at least when you look at it, you can kind of frame the numbers effect. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's useful for folks when they're interpreting this data to kind of recall how things are being categorized, right? And in order to get data, you have to put a label on it. And for example, I, I read it was you know, a story about people's experience having COVID. So it's anecdotal, but there are now thousands of people who have had it for several months and have had been, had, you know, debilitating or, or extremely exhausting symptoms. And that gets counted as mild because they weren't admitted to an ER and put on um, a ventilator. So it's, it's often difficult to tease out those, those, uh, those details. Well, early on, from what I understand, you know, many people, you might have had symptoms, but they were, you know, just so rationing tests and other things that there are people that weren't even classified as having COVID. And in fact, we saw the same thing with some of the early coding, as morbid as it is, on deaths related to COVID as well. So, look, we're always concerned about data quality. Your analyses are always limited by how good your data is. This is a perfect storm of need for instantaneous data. Uh, a phenomenon that even the medical community, although they understand, they don't understand well because it's so novel. Rapid, massive spread of both um, a, a disease and then coupled with an entire change in our lifestyle and our economic circumstances. So it is a waterfall of data, but it's, you know, you couldn't imagine um, a more difficult series of circumstances back to back to back to back to have to try to interpret things. But just because it's unprecedented, there's that word again, just because we've never experienced something like this, to me, that's the time you want to dig in the data the most. Let's get and glean whatever insights we can get, even if it's a little bit incomplete. That's far better than just basically speculating and sort of guessing. Um, let's try to be as disciplined as we can be and keep piecing the data together to tell the best, make the best decision we can. And if we have to pivot, we can pivot. But I think this is exactly the kind of time when data analysis is critical. I want to think a little bit more about kind of the, so what some of the economic consequences of the coronavirus have been, because I've, I've been a bit of a doom and gloom thinker on the economy for a while, and which, which you know, our listeners will know why, and, and it's kind of apropos of nothing here. But I, I had thought that the coronavirus would be 
not just not just like a single exogenous cause that would make the economy suffer temporarily, but it would be a a uh, a start of a of a domino effect. And what's interesting is you know we have we're in this situation right now where the uh, the economy has started to quote unquote bounce back and we've started to sort of hire people again and you know but we still have probably over 20% unemployment and there was a, apparently a bloody accounting error that that about the actual may unemployment numbers which which unemployment numbers are always messed up anyway um anyway so we're in the situation where we have like 20% unemployment where the government has has massively put itself into debt where a lot of people are facing substantial like uh economic what's the word uh economic distress and and so aggregate demand has gone down and you know it seems like a lot of jobs aren't even coming back and yet like the stock market seems totally happy and mm-hmm. you know and and it like had a bad time for a while and then like every piece of news that the stock market seems to get that this isn't literally apocalyptic makes the stock market go up and um you meant i you know i I don't know how prepared you feel to opine on on the uh you know on the animal spirit of of stock traders but <laughs> but to some extent what I'm what the the gut sense I have and and this is where like look you don't have to like agree with me at all you can in fact shut me down but the the gut sense I have is that there is a, that is that like the ground reality if you'd you know and I know we're in this unprecedented situation but the ground reality looks grim in terms of, oh, people's savings are depleted. They don't have jobs. Those jobs aren't necessarily coming back. Um, aggregate demand for everything is lower. Okay, everything we look at from the ground reality looks super grim. And yet, you know, it, it, the, we're, not seeing, we're not seeing the kind of like decrease in asset values, either in company asset values or, or real estate asset values or something like that, that we'd expect to see um, if, if the folks with the money thought that you know, thought that there would be an extended period where stuff wasn't going to get sold. So I'm wondering, like, what are the what are the actual economic indicators that we can be looking at at the moment to give us to give us some sort of sense of what could be happening next? Or, or you know, what is what is like the relative health of the economy? Again, given that we're in a, you know, we're, we're in a recession that is unlike any that we've that we've seen in the modern era because of its cause. Right. So that's a lot to unpack. I'll take the invitation to sort of um, push back mildly, but not really. I mean, so let's start with sort of where my expertise is, because I, I always like to sort of be pretty transparent about where I kind of feel like I'm really well qualified to speak and where I want to always be careful. So I'm a labor economist in part by training. So I spend a lot of time on the labor numbers, the unemployment numbers. Obviously, I'm a PhD economist, so I understand things about finance and about the stock market and like that. Um, but I'm definitely more of a microeconomist, which means sort of thinking about sort of really that on the ground harm you're talking about, sort of theories of things like that. So when I look at these numbers, here's kind of what I try to take from it. So the first thing is um, there is a rush <laughs> to try to say that this is a V-shaped recovery. And that's just not consistent with any of the evidence that I see at all, right? When you look at the unemployment numbers, even so there was the issue with the, the mistake by the surveyors at the you know um, Labor Department, the Bureau of Labor Statistics that sort of caused that sort of fairly big 3 million you know, number change in the unemployment. Now, granted, you know, we are talking about a scale of numbers right now that are just crazy in terms of, you know, one week's 
unemployment insurance claims last week. Before coronavirus started, still would have been three times greater than any single week in the entire history of the series, right? <laughs> so we are playing in a world where we are very, very deep job hole. And although, yes, there are some jobs coming back, and that is a good thing, and a, you know, there is some reason for a bit of optimism there, we are well, well underwater. And I mean, in fact, we do this little infographic each week, those un unemployment insurance claims. And we started sort of the first week of COVID and said, all right, if you were, if the sea level was sort of where the unemployment levels were when you started, and you raised it in proportion to how much these claims have gone up, right now, the United States is underwater all the way to Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> um, a, that's pretty bad news, right? <laughs> so we have a lot of water to recede. All right. So yes, we had one good week and we had some sort of encouraging numbers from the BLS that there's some recovery. Well, if you go under the surface of the numbers though, and you, they come out state by state, they come out by industry by industry, state by state, the unemployment insurance claims are still all over the map. And you do not see a uniform recovery. You see, in fact, Again, showing the fallacy of simple stories, there are states that have reopened where the numbers of uninsurance, uninsured employment claims are still going up. There are states that are still locked down where they're going down. It's actually really complicated again. But also the other factor that we have to sort of loop in here is the government response has been pretty dramatic. And that's not a policy statement or sort of even a, you know, a political statement. It's just simply the Federal Reserve has done several things. We have seen Congress has passed the CARES Act where now unemployment insurance claims, you get $600 more um, through the end of July. We had the PPP loan program, right? So there's been an aggressive move on some of these financial stimulus things. I take, when I look at the market, sort of a few things. One is I think the market likes, a, you know, just doesn't like surprising. So as long as they're not surprised, that seems to be partly what's driving it. I also think we could be, you know, one negative shock away from a pretty big swing. <laughs> and so I don't know that I take comfort in the, um, the current views of Wall Street per se. This is just my opinion. It does seem way over exuberant given the rest of the economic news. Again, I think we'll take any good economic news right now. But the idea of businesses, you know, the restaurant sector has been devastated. Some of those jobs are not coming back. Some of those restaurants aren't making it. The airline sector has been devastated. Travel, tourism, we started to see this broaden out to other services um, and other parts of the economy. So I don't think there's any prescription that says, oh, this is going to just bounce right back and everything's going to be great and the economy is going to be roaring. I think under any reasonable read of the data, it's going to be a pretty spotty sort of sawtooth recovery where some sectors may recover, some states may recover if there's another downturn. I mean, the thing that gives me the most pause about this is back to what we started with. This is a economic crisis driven by a health crisis. We don't have the health crisis under control yet. <laughs> we don't have, you know, we can't do what they've done in other countries where they have the more or less universal testing, contract, contact tracing, the types of things that have eradicated that in other places. We can't do that both as a society because of the way we are and because we don't have the capability. So I think the big wild card here is if we don't have the health crisis under control, the economic numbers can say what they say, and we can see increases, improvements. But at any time, that's lurking behind the scenes. I think that's the great unknown that makes me the most worried when I look at these numbers. I was looking at, and and maybe maybe we can just recommend to to some of our listeners who 
you know what's what's so hard about this is that we're just we're just here for, along for the ride, man. So maybe the right answer is just like you know, if you're in a state where it's legal, light a bowl and try to try to keep your head down and ride it out and hope for the best. Because there's not a whole lot any of us individually can do. But if you're like me and you like to, you know, you like to turn all of your anxious energy into endless research about stuff that mm-hmm. is totally outside of your control. You know, I think for the, the the things I'm trying to pay attention to are both this the 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 double uh, double spike, right? Um, you know, coronavirus. You know, overtaxes a hospital, a major hospital system in the United States. Round two, and where is that going to happen? And I'm poking around, looking looking for that because uh, I think it is going to happen. And and also, yeah, what like beyond beyond looking at unemployment numbers and like anecdotes you know i saw for example that hertz declared bankruptcy and it's selling a bunch of its cars off at rock bottom prices it's like well that's you know car rental market's not coming back and uh and so other than like kind of poking around at these anecdotes for you know where you get to go like oh here's another here's another case of bad news what can i as a citizen do to kind of turn my nervous energy into some some level of education it sounds like you mentioned kind of state by state or sector by sector unemployment numbers or or something else like that. Well, not to make a joke, but I actually took up electric guitar during this. So that's there we I, go. <laughs> we have that in common. Yeah. You know, so look, I think um, there's a lot of data coming out. And, and what I try to look for and sort of is systematically that the data series come out on a fairly regular basis. There's sort of the Bureau of Economic Analysis, there's the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's the Commerce Department, and you can definitely see there are industry reports that come out sort of reporting ups and downs that are kind of helpful. There are sort of the, the GDP reports. There are these employment situation reports. I mean, if you are a data geek and you really want to dig into some numbers, those are good places to start because I think they're fairly readable. And again, you don't have to um, be running statistical analyses in the background to at least sort of see directionally what's going on and things like that. I also think, you know, looking at, it is hard. The anecdote problem is really significant here. And I mean, and I think we're all prone to it. And we tend to, I'm not a psychologist either, but, you know, you tend to be more prone to it. You know, you're in your house and then you see pictures of people out at restaurants and like, just, and I'm like, wow, is this really, are, are we reopened that much or not? And so, again, the more that we can kind of try to find concrete, measurable information, about the state of things, you know, real numbers <laughs> helps a lot in terms of at least sort of allaying some fears. Unfortunately, a lot of the real numbers have just continued to be not that great. So um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, if it weren't the fact that we are all living through this really difficult time, from a statistical perspective, this would be one of the most fascinating things we'd ever dealt with because it's the ultimate problem in, you know, the phrase is endogeneity everything's changing at once. So how do you tease out what any of it means? How do you actually get a causation in these settings? Uh, you have to be really creative and really thoughtful about the data as you piece it together. And I, it's a giant jigsaw puzzle, but I really would put it that way. View different data sets as snapshots as you try to put together kind of what the narratives are. But it's, it's, not a, it's hard for all of us, those that are professional data analysts. This is tough to interpret. And so just taking our time to be thoughtful and actually not over-attributing causation, um, getting back to basics is pretty important here. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, I, I before we, uh, I just going to, Something came to mind before we moved on when you mentioned the endogeneity, the endogeneity problem of everything changing at once here in the United States or sorry, in the world uh, mm-hmm. on this on this blue ball. I, I remember seeing a tweet from someone somewhere uh, that said future historians will be asked which quarter of 2020 they specialize in. And uh, and, and, you know, your profession has the same has the same problem of trying to peel apart all these different. Uh, you know, all these different causes to to a high level number where in the past, like those those causes have been somewhat consistent. So if the right. high level number changes. You're like, oh, I wonder which one of these low level numbers or which one or two have like gone off the wall here. And now we look down, and we go like, well, it's all crazy now. right? It's just all gone. And oh. and so all the all the heuristics we formerly relied on are out the window and we get to rebuild these understandings from the ground up. So. Uh, in addition to you know electric guitar, anyone who uh, wants to become an an armchair analyst, you know obviously there's a we're gonna we're gonna link to a Dr. Johnson's book Every Data as a as a place to get started doing that. But Xander, I know you you had something you wanted to ask, right? Yeah, and I'll just mention for for uh, fans of the show, they'll know that I I am a longtime electric guitarist, and one of Eric and my first interaction was. Uh, I, he thought I had sent him a link to my band on Spotify and he started talking about how awesome it was then live on a, on a show one time, it turned out it was the wrong band and (laughs) and the band he found was great. So I I have no bones with that. And and Xander's band is great too, for the record. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I don't think band is in my future. I, I, I better stick with data. That's based on my early performance so far. Yeah. Well, I think I think it speaks a little bit to the weirdness of 2020 that we're now, you know, 40 minutes into this interview and maybe the fourth or fifth topic we're going to talk about is the presidential election coming up in a couple of months. Right. And if we look at I'm looking at 538 right now and it's the uh, aggregation of their polls. Biden is has pretty solid lead in Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Arizona, Florida, and then slim in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and it's leaning towards Trump a little bit in Georgia and Texas, some of those big swing states. And I, I kind of have a two-part question for you here. The first is, you know, a lot of people will look at 2016 and say, the polls were wrong in scare quotes, right? And even though that's not really how probability and, and thinking about uncertainty works when you're dealing with, with numbers like this. So that's the first question I want to ask is, do you think that some of the polling challenges that may be biased the sample selection in 2016 are still prevalent today? Or is there something that we should be thinking about in terms of how the polling is conducted that might be off? And second off, I forget if it was in an interview that I read that you did, or if it was um, the first chapter of your book, but you talk about this contrast between big and small data. 
and how you know 538 does all of these meta analyses where they kind of aggregate lots and lots of different polls and the ideas to reduce the margin of error total. And you mentioned that small data is good too, picking one poll and really getting to understand it. So what can you learn from looking at a single poll that maybe you can't if you're looking at an aggregation? Right. So I think there's a few things. So I think the polling area is, um, you know, look, there was somewhat of a crisis of confidence in polling in 2016. And it wasn't just the US election. It was Brexit. It was other things. Now, let's think about sort of the traditional science of polling and how complicated this is, right? In some respects, what we're seeing is we're going to predict the voting patterns of, you know, more than 100 million Americans with a survey of 3,000 people. Think about that. That's, that's pretty remarkable that you could ever get that right if you start. But if you actually think about the science of it, it's, it's actually pretty amazing. So the 2016 lessons, I think, were partly a very, you know, the big issue at the end of the day was just what I would call the serial correlation in the voters in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan that were wholesaling missed by the pollsters. There was a pocket of voters breaking for Trump, um, certain demographic groups that the polls just underrepresented and missed. Then there was another more foundational issue, which is, you know, the media narratives. And, and, you know, part of the job of the media, I guess, is to create story. Um, And my first experience getting interviewed for the media was in 2016 during the polling situation where I was on a lot of sort of news shows and everything was about the horse race and the horse race was about the national polls everything's about the national poll you know the electoral college means we better be looking at the state poll (laughs) and some of the state polls are of really poor quality and so the combination of poor quality state polling um missing a swath of the electorate that was actually pretty important and then sort of there was this phenomenon of were people sort of closet Trump voters who at the time were afraid or weren't going to be participating in polls or didn't want to say they were going to vote for Trump, all those things combined to kind of get to where they were. Now, the failure of polling is a little overstated because the national numbers were pretty close to what actually happened with the popular vote. But the Electoral College and the state mapping is where things really went awry in 2016. So in 2020, what should we take from that? Well, first of all, we may not have as close of an election. It's a lot easier to get it right if it's a 10-point margin than a one-point margin. <laughs> so, um, but let's not be arrogant about it or, or, or think that five months out, the situation couldn't change repeatedly between now and then. So what I would be looking for is, first of all, you know, the 538 does an excellent job with things. I am not a huge fan of, you know, you'll see media oftentimes do average of averages and they average all these polls together and treat them as if every poll is equally good. There are good polls and bad polls. So part of my comment on find polls that are sort of more reputable, and I know 538 has rankings of these things, you know, I would rather sort of track the same reputable poll over time than throw in random polls that are either known to be biased in one direction or the other, or just, you know, of lesser quality, right? Not all polls are created equal. And sometimes I think in the mass to aggregate data, we see this more in the mainstream media. It's like, oh, well, we just averaged all these polls together and whatever the latest poll is the most credible poll. And that's not really the case. You can have seven polls pointing in one direction, one poll pointing in the other. That one poll could be really bad or maybe the seven polls are really bad. So it's just a little bit more thoughtfulness to it. I think that's sort of what I would apply. But look, right now, at least one thing that I do think people are being cautious about is seeing a lot more attention to state level polls already. And that's probably a good thing. But I think this is a very different election, very different electoral map. And um, so I think the set of states we're going to care about 
is going to be broader in 2020 than it was in 2016 in terms of those that could actually swing this election. You know, I I think one of the one of the things that I think we may also want to bring up and at least like get your get your thoughts on are are these like exogenous, you know, exogenous moments, right? I think again, I look, I'm just going to I'm I'm just going to reveal my bias that I think most people I know who trade in the stock market are are crazy and they go like, oh, look, like there's this inflection point in this curve. And that means the future will look like this. It's like, no, something's going to like a thing is going to happen that's going to impact the health of this business. Right. And like whether that does or not is going to be what determines the price of this at some point. You know, kind of the same thing with the polls is like, oh, we, we saw Hillary Clinton was trending in the following direction. And that trend meant that we could project it out like a hurricane. It's like, no, because then, oh, gosh, James Comey came out like, you know, 18 seconds before the election and said, by the way, uh, just out of nowhere, decided to reopen an investigation by the FBI into corruption in terms of Hillary Clinton's emails. You know, just just feel like doing it. Everyone's like, oh, good Lord. OK, you know, so there are these events that happen that that influence things more than just like, you know, more than just like line tracing outward as if as if like we were in this kind of static box. And you know, you you did study the 2016 election at, at length. And what I wonder is, to what extent, to what extent in your study, was it the case that, you know, we had the shy Tory effect and we had just like, you know, we we missampled, you know, we we the, the polls kind of, you know, they have they have to like, you know, take groups of people and they go like, OK, this group's voting Trump and and what percentage of them are actually going to show up to the polls this and they got that wrong versus you know, it was, it, look, it made sense, or, or the polls kind of made sense, and then things just changed really quickly at the end when the FBI declared out loud that one of the candidates was under investigation for being corrupt or some other exogenous circumstance just turned it. And I don't know, you know, I, I've, obviously, I have a hypothesis, but I've not actually studied it at length. And I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if, if you have a sense of having looked back on it, wh- you know, which of these has more... Uh, impact. Look, I think one of the things about all data analysis, you know, past has to be prologue for your forecast to make any sense at all, right? If what we're looking at before is fundamentally different today, you know, the technical term is if there's a structural break, right, which is more important in October surprise is the nomenclature people will probably have heard of more. Well, then, you know, all bets are off. So, you know, my recollection is that there were obviously issues with sort of, again, it's a little hard to disentangle both. I don't think there's any question that at some level, the October surprise, you know, there were sort of two quote unquote October surprises. There was the um, Texas Hollywood tape, and then there was the James Comey investigation reopening. And it seems that the second had more of an effect than the first. Could that simply be because it was closer to the election? Could it be because it was, you know, um, reinforced expectations that people already had? I think part of it, quite frankly, though, is that it was always a closer election than people led on. (laughs) And I do think that's sort of one thing that we have to be very careful about is that um, there, there was a real sense in which people looked at the numbers and just thought it was a total impossibility that Trump could win. I think that underplayed the electoral college advantages um, of any Republican in the sort of the current configuration, although, again, that seems to be eroding a bit with changes in Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, for example. But I think it's both. I don't think it's sort of one or the other. Um, But you can't, again, if 
if we could forecast the outcome, we don't have to have the election. Exactly. So I think a big part of this has got to be this continued focus on what is the reason for the polling at all? Is it a snapshot of what we think the state of the electorate is at this point in time? Yeah. Is it really something we should be using as the tool by which we predict the election? Probably not. Um, That's just not, you know, we probably don't have enough precision to do that. Um, It can highlight spots to watch, it can highlight places where things might be unusual. But I, I think a little bit of a step back about what polling can and can't be actually used for. I mean, yeah, I understand it's fun to do the horse race. Everybody loves the horse race, but that's probably not the right use of the poll. Then what what is I mean, I know that obviously the, the president came out recently uh, with a, I believe a cease and desist letter uh, drafted by some lawyer uh, to CNN because he did not like uh, the, the result he was getting. And the, the claim by the president is that you know, is that polls that make him look like he's losing or, or uh, you know, would, would suppress enthusiasm, you know, whether or not it was intentional, right? So let's just, let's just assume for right now that there's not some deeply held conspiracy by the pollsters at CNN to, to destroy the president, but, but whether or not there is, right, is it, is it the case that polls can, can deflate enthusiasm? And does it, you know, does it cut both ways? Because I think, you know, you, you, you know, if you're on anyone, if you're ever on anyone's presidential um, or, or election, you know, email list, right? Two things are always true. One, we can totally win. Two, it's always, it's dicey, right? It's dicey and you better throw money at us because it's bloody dicey. And so, you, you know, you get this sense that the marketers have figured out a close election is the kind of thing that, you know, amps people up to send money and, and show up and vote. And so um, do the, you know, do the, is is there any demonstrated effect that the polls that polls have impact our behavior up to and on election day? And then beyond that, you know, besides besides having fun with the horse race, what else can we use polls for that are actually interesting? Right. So, look, I think that look, I live outside of Washington D.C. I think it's a Washington D.C. Pollard game at times in terms of you know everybody cares about those things. I don't know. Again, I don't want to speak in an unscientific way, but it has always struck me as straining credibility that people change or modify their votes or their voting behavior extensively based on the polls. Does that mean that there aren't some people that do? Sure. But um, I think it's overstated. I think it goes in both directions. I mean, one of the interesting findings, actually, from sort of the literature is that you actually, the more accurate question for predicting the winner of an election is not who who do you intend to vote for? It's when you ask people, who do you think is going to win? There's a much better job of predicting who's going to win historically. Wow. That's that's kind of an interesting kind of tidbit (laughs) um, that, you know, you can kind of take from that. So, so what, look, there's no question campaigns run very sophisticated polling operations. They're trying to figure out where they're going to turn out people, how they're going to canvas, what are they going to do? It's another area where in our lifetimes have gone from sort of traditional phone polling to now, how do you do a good internet poll? How do you how do you exist in a world where people have cell phones? I mean, there are just some fundamental differences in the electorate because of the changes in technology that I wonder if these things have caught up as much as they have to. Um, and of course, you know, is there interest in sort of sentiments? Is there interest in what issues matter to people? Is that important in terms of continuing to sort of push candidates to sort of put out their positions? Yeah, I think that's part of sort of being an educated you know, citizenry, right, is that we kind of can use these polls in that way as well. 
Um, I always find the the opinions on issues to be more interesting to me than who you're going to vote for. But maybe I'm just geeky. So I I want to ask you a little bit more of a, a conceptual question now. In, in an interview a couple of years ago, I think it was um, when you were being interviewed about the 2016 election, you referenced uh, a study where the, the title of the study was one out of five CEOs are psychopaths, a new study says. And uh, hmm. you mentioned in the interview that the actual conclusion found in the paper, if you went through the effort of pulling the paper up, was one out of five professionals in the supply chain industry in companies with more than $50 million in revenues are psychopaths based on self-reported data of their own characteristics. And also, they only sampled about 261 people. So, And earlier today, you mentioned about how, you know, in a way, the media's responsibility, their job is to create narratives and sell stories. And, you know, I think that's right. And so there is this incentive to shorten titles and make things a little bit more sensational. And uh, recently, I've been working on like the SEO of our website. Um, for our, for example, and one of the things that this plugin that we have that recommends that we do is shorten the title so that it can fit in the Google search rankings right completely without being cut off. So I, I'm curious, do you think that to a degree, data here is sort of acting as an enemy of data because the algorithms that are sorting all of this data that is being created by us and all of the, you know, everything that we're doing is that somehow getting in the way of us actually being able to understand data being presented to us? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, so that I remember that well because, in fact, I gave a TEDx talk and one of the and all about misleading headlines, and that was the lead headline. And I always make the joke, "Well, I'm a CEO, and I don't think I'm a psychopath." But and you know, so it is. I actually remember that study very well. And so, look, I'm not sure. I think it is true that the data can be getting in the way of the data, but I'm not sure that's actually a new phenomenon, right? I always think people that want to dig deeper, you know, do you read the summary or do you read the entire book, right? Do you listen to the first five minutes of the podcast or do you listen to the whole thing? I mean, this is always an issue where to actually understand the real world, it's a nuanced world. And so whether you're thinking about data, whether you're thinking about science, whether you're thinking about news, um, you have to dig in. And so, yes, the, the desire, the need, the sort of way things are synthesized, the way search engines work, um, yeah, that can be, that can impede certain things. At the end of the day, though, as I said, I think that's a, that's a pretty age-old problem that, you know, how do people educate themselves? How do people learn the full context? Do we have the discipline to go and actually dig deeper to find out what these things really mean? So what I love about Xander's question is that that there are implications for us besides just being spectators of the giant train wreck that is this year, right? Because I was, you know, I was talking earlier about feel, this this feeling of helplessness that that I have, and I think many fellow Americans have, which is not what the show is about. But you know, but I think, but I, you know, we've been talking about watching the coronavirus and watching the economy and and watching the election and going, what can I really do about it other than keep my head down and play guitar? And, you know, and, and Xander had, you know, Xander brings up a great example of, of us using this at least, you know, using better literacy, statistical literacy, at least in our own business um, that he and I have here. And I'm, I guess I have a twofold question for you. And, and I think we're getting up on our, yeah, we're past our hour already. Oh boy. Okay. So, so this may be the last one is, you know, one, where do you, you know, and I, 
I, I don't need you to like necessarily opine on on voting and and other political activism, but um, you know, but one, where can where can we use better statistical literacy in our lives to help us make better decisions as you know citizens and actors in our countries? That that you probably I'm you know I've not read. I've not div- dived into your book yet. Um, I know Xander has, but I suspect you make the case somewhere um, in every data about how, you know, about, about what the implications are for you of, of being more literate about this. And then, you know, besides obviously reading your book, which we'll, we'll be posting so that everyone can, can go take a look. And I've got my copy on the way. But besides reading your book, what are the other, what are the other base practices that you recommend that we as citizens use to improve our statistical literacy? So I think first, you know, look, I think that it um, I don't think it's hopeless. Right. What I sort of tell people is that whenever you're confronted with data, you know, try to figure out what it is that you're trying to answer. What is the question? Think about when you're reading a data study of any form or fashion, you know, what can you tell yourself about the source of the data, the motive of the person writing the article, what it actually says? And, you know, what what would be the types of questions you might want to if you dug deeper into that? Again, you don't have to be a statistical expert to think about data and numbers and sort of come up with things that, um, you know, that might be, you know, a big problem or sort of that just sort of are holes. And so I just encourage people to try to develop that intuition a little bit more so that if you're a consumer of data, you're actually making questions and thinking about, you know, what they mean versus just sort of blindly going with the, you know, notion that all CEOs are psychopaths. Um, well, as we, as we close up here, uh, I want to, again, reference that interview that you made. And, you know, Eric and I, uh, on the show and on our website, when we, when we write articles, talk a lot about tribalism and the impact of tribalism on politics and um, divisive res- uh, rhetoric and narratives in, in the country. And in a way, when I came across this line that you had in this interview, I really thought, oh, wow, we found one of our own tribe here. Because one of, one of the things that we say at the beginning of every show at Reconsider is, you know, we talk about politics, but we don't do the thinking for you. And in this interview, you said, I can't tell you what to think, but I can give you a complete picture of what these numbers are telling you and let you decide. And I just wanted to say that I really appreciated that line and think uh, we have found a kindred spirit in, in the cause to sort of you know, talk about things a little bit more even handedly. Before we break, I, I just uh, want to say um, or want to ask, you know, if someone wants to find Edgeworth Analytics first, how is that different than Edgeworth Economics and what sort of difficult problems can you guys solve? Right. So, you know, our, we have the two companies. Our economics company mainly specializes in expert witness litigation and economics. So in that role, or many of our experts testify, as I do, testify in various litigation matters, usually involving really large data sets. The analytics company is more to provide consulting to companies and other clients that need help on any number of potential data issues. And think of it this way. You have a data issue and you just want to talk to someone about how do I think about it? You know, maybe we do engagements where people hire us to solve their problems, but oftentimes it can also be as simple as, can you educate me about how to think about the data? Or can you just talk me through in an intelligent way some of the data? And we do those kind of sort of small engagements as well. Um, and then we, you know, we deal with a whole host of problems, everything from how much inventory should a retailer keep to, you know, what is the data telling us about reopening and is it safe to reopen? I mean, there's just a, there's a wide range of things. But the, again, back to sort of what you said, and I actually appreciate the compliment very much. I mean, I've always tried to approach the data that the way we can be most useful to our clients and in general to the public 
is when we educate them about how to make sense of the data themselves. Yes, I have specialized expertise where I can look at things, I have experience, I know how to do statistical analyses, but at the end of the day, I can't be a substitute for your own business sense. What I can do is help make sure that what you're thinking is rigorous, question you about the things that maybe the data aren't lining up on, and try to get the solution. So that's what we do in our analytics business every day is try to provide concrete, real solutions to people to help them solve their problems. Yeah. I, Eric's now at a startup. I was at a startup a couple of years ago and we had a saying that was kind of like a riff on the Silicon Valley app of like hot dog, no hot dog, where all this app did was like tell you whether or not you, what the picture was, was a hot dog. And we were kind of a data company. <laughs> we were a bit of a data company. And we always used to say as a joke, you know, data, 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 get all the data, dollar, dollar bills, y'all. And like data folks doesn't just turn into money. You need uh, you need help interpreting it and understanding it. So oh, that's been the missing step the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, data doesn't come ready to use. I mean, if it did, everybody could use it. I mean, we create more data than we ever have before. We have an army of data just sitting on it, but that doesn't mean it's it's usable. And I think that's where the frustration comes for people. They know they want to be more rigorous. They know they want to be sort of logical and get the insights, but they just can't even begin to make sense of the data they have or even how the data might fit together. So uh, with that, dear listeners, uh, if, you, if you're not a big company and you don't, you, know, you, you don't have a big company to go hire Edgeworth Analytics to solve your problems with it, but you want to read more about how to use data on a day-to-day basis, check out Dr. Johnson's book, Every Data, The Misinformation Hidden in the Little Data You Consume Every Day. Um, and I'd like to say to Dr. Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it was really conversation that was apropos of the moment. Well, thank you very much. It is a great conversation. Great to uh, talk with you both. And I said, I'm uh, wishing everybody the best in these really crazy times. Yeah. And who knew, who knew that chatting about, you know, gnarly, st- like gnarly problems of statistics and data hygiene would be this much fun, huh? So... <laughs> Uh, if you thought this was fun, boy, get ready for a good time when you go dive a little bit deeper into every data. No, but really, it, it's, uh, yeah, thank you so much. It's been a ball. And you know what? Uh, I have I have some thoughts about, wh- about when to sort of bring you back in because as the, you know, a lot of these things that are going, that, that we're in the middle of the changes of now, you know, we're seeing a major shift in, you know, in, in you know, one thing we didn't even ask about because it's probably too early is we're seeing a major shift in American and especially white attitudes on, you know, on, on their fellow black citizens and the state. And, and it looks like we're seeing shifts towards, you know, towards, you know, away from Republicans towards Democrats for the next election, you know, and, and we're, we're opening the economy back up and we're starting to get data about that. Uh, and, and so, so much is going to be clearer to us in three to six months kind of thing that uh, we would we would love to see if we could have you back, you know, around around that. I'm sure you'll be busy come October. Everyone's everyone's going to be asking you to play Nostradamus. But but I think I think there's a lot we can follow up on. It would be my pleasure. It's a great conversation. And hopefully the data will make some things clearer by then. Um, But either way, there'll be some interesting things to talk about. I am sure. All right, dear listeners, let's let Dr. Johnson go. Uh, remember, to, remember, as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause, reconsider, go get the data, and stay safe, everyone. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.